Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Hi everyone, this is Stu, the host of British Murders. I wanted to take this opportunity as we enter 2021 to thank every single one of my listeners for giving the show a chance. It really means the world to me, and your support throughout my journey so far has not gone unnoticed. This episode of British Murders is sponsored by Podcorn, an online marketplace which allows podcasters to connect with potential sponsors and seek out amazing sponsorship opportunities for their podcast. These opportunities include things such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions and more. All you have to do is visit Podcorn's website, search for available sponsors and send them a proposal. That's exactly what I did with Podcorn themselves, and as a result, they're now sponsoring this episode. By using Podcorn, you're cutting out the middleman. Any podcaster can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, regardless of if your show is well-established or if you just started today. You're able to set your own rates and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn is there to support you at every step. They will ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom and full control of how and when they monetize. If you're a podcaster and have always wondered how to start monetizing your podcast and have always wondered how to start monetizing your work, Click the link in my show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start searching for sponsorship opportunities now. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I am by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. The Victorian period in Britain is classed as the period from 1837 to 1901, when Queen Victoria was monarch of the United Kingdom. 
It was a period of huge industrial and technological change, shocking divisions between rich and poor, sensational crimes and grand attempts to combat squalor and disease. Multiple cholera epidemics occurred, smallpox was common, tuberculosis was prevalent and syphilis was contracted by prostitutes who would pass it on to their clients who would then infect their wives. The Victorian society was divided into nobility upper class, middle class and the working class. The Victorian upper class consisted of the aristocrats, nobles, dukes, other wealthy families working in the Victorian courts. Many aristocrats did not work as for centuries together their families had been gathering enough money for each generation to live a luxurious life. The working class was the worst affected class in the Victorian era. Lack of money resulted in a negligible food supply. For some working families, the living conditions were so pathetic that they required their children to work in order to bring home some extra income to survive. Life expectancy for middle class men was around 45, with the working class life expectancy around half of that. Children were lucky to survive their fifth birthdays. I do love a bit of history, and although this podcast focuses on British murderers, a brief background of Victoria Britain is important as it provides context for this episode's story. The subject of this episode is a woman named Amelia Dyer who, unlike many of her generation, was not the product of grinding poverty. Amelia was born in the small village of Pyle Marsh, just east of Bristol in southwest England. The youngest of five children, Amelia's parents were Samuel and Sarah Hobley. Samuel Hobley was a master shoemaker and highly respected. Amelia developed an early love of literature and poetry. However, she suffered a damaged childhood as a result of her mother's mental illness, something which was caused by typhus. Typhus is a group of infectious diseases caused by bacteria which spreads to humans through fleas, lice and chigger bites. Amelia witnessed her mother's violent fits and was obliged to care for her until her death in 1848. After her mother's death, Amelia lived with an aunt in Bristol for a while before serving an apprenticeship with a corset maker. Amelia had two sisters who died very young. Her elder sister, Sarah Ann, died in 1841 at the age of six, and her younger sister, also named Sarah Ann, died in 1845 and was only a few months old. Her father died in 1859, which resulted in her eldest brother, Thomas, inheriting the family shoe business. In 1861, at the age of 24, Amelia moved into lodgings in Trinity Street, Bristol. It was around this time that she married a man named George Thomas. George was 59 and both he and Amelia lied about their ages on the marriage certificate in order to reduce the age gap. George deducted 11 years from his age making him appear 48 and Amelia added 6 years to her age making her appear 30. After marrying George Thomas, Amelia trained as a nurse. However, in 1869, the elderly George Thomas died and Amelia needed an income. Being a nurse proved too difficult of a way to earn a living for Amelia and she soon learned from a midwife named Ellen Dane that there was a far easier way to earn a living. Baby farming. Baby farming is the historical practice of accepting custody of an infant or child in exchange for payment in late Victorian Britain. In 
The predicament of the parents involved was that they were often exploited for financial gain. If a baby had well-off parents who wanted to keep the birth a secret, the single fee might be as much as £80. For reference, £80 in 1861, the year Amelia married George Thomas, is worth around £12,000 in 2020. Baby farming stopped after a series of acts passed in the early 20th century. These included the Children Act 1908 and the 1939 Adoption of Children Regulation Act, which gradually placed adoption and foster care under the protection and regulation of the state. Amelia planned to use her home to provide lodgings for the babies of young women who had conceived illegitimately in exchange for regular or one-off payments. Single motherhood during this era was looked down on by society. Around 35 to 40,000 women gave birth to an illegitimate child in England each year during the mid-19th century. The single mothers almost always belonged to the lower class and the fathers belonged to a higher class. Pressure from possible employers, friends, colleagues and family members forced single mothers to often kill their own children to avoid being ostracised or starving to death. Unmarried mothers in Victorian Britain often struggled to gain an income since the 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act had removed any financial obligation from the fathers of illegitimate children. Unfortunately, baby farming wasn't always done by carers with good intentions. Many resorted to starving the babies to save money and to increase the likelihood of death. Noisy or demanding babies were often sedated with alcohol or opiates. A regular choice was a syrup containing opium named Godfrey's Cordial or Mother's Friend. Many children died this way, however opium killed far more infants through starvation than directly through overdose. Death resulted from severe malnutrition, however the coroner was likely to record the death as debility from birth or lack of breast milk or simply starvation. Amelia was keen to make money from baby farming and she advertised to nurse and adopt babies in return for a substantial one-off payment and adequate clothing for the child. In the adverts, Amelia assured the mothers that she was respectable, married and would provide a safe and loving home for the child. In 1872, Amelia married William Dyer, a brewer's labourer from Bristol. They had two children together, Mary Ann, also known as Polly, and William Samuel. Amelia later left William Dyer. At some point in her baby farming career, Amelia felt it was too expensive and inconvenient to simply let the children die of starvation through neglect. She instead decided to murder each child as soon as she received them, which allowed her to pocket the fee paid in full. Amelia continued this practice for years without being caught. She was eventually caught in 1879 after a doctor was suspicious about the number of child deaths he had been called to certify in Amelia's care. Shockingly, instead of being convicted of murder or manslaughter, Amelia was sentenced to six months hard labour for neglect. Amelia resumed her nursing career when her six months was up. She spent time in mental hospitals due to her alleged mental instability and suicidal tendencies, however, these always coincided with times when it was convenient for her to disappear when she thought the police were closing in on her again. 
Amelia knew just how to behave in these asylums due to her experience as a former asylum nurse. She regularly abused alcohol and opium-based products early in her killing career. Opium and other narcotics were prevalent in Victorian Britain. It was possible to walk into a chemist and buy, without a prescription, laudanum, cocaine and even arsenic. Opium preparations were sold freely in urban towns as well as in country markets. In 1890, Amelia cared for the illegitimate baby of a governess. When the governess returned to visit the child, she was immediately suspicious and stripped the baby to see if a birthmark was present on one of its hips. There was no birthmark. Prolonged suspicions by the authorities led to Amelia having or feigning a breakdown. At one point, she drank two bottles of laudanum, an alcoholic solution containing morphine, in a serious suicide attempt, but her long-term opioid abuse had built up her tolerance, so the attempt ultimately failed. She quickly returned to baby farming and murder. It was at this point that Amelia realised it wasn't wise to report the baby's deaths to doctors, as it only raised suspicions. As a result, she began disposing of the bodies herself. Over the years, Amelia used a succession of aliases as she frequently relocated to different towns and cities to escape suspicion. This was also a way of gaining new business for her baby farming. In 1893, Amelia was discharged from the Somerset and Bath Lunatic Asylum near Wells, South East England. This was Amelia's last visit to a mental institution. In 1895, Amelia moved to Caversham in Berkshire, South East England. She was accompanied by an unsuspecting accomplice named Jane Smith, whom Amelia had recruited from a brief spell in a workhouse. This was followed by a move to 45 Kensington Road in Reading in Berkshire later that same year. Jane was persuaded by Amelia to be referred to as Mother in front of any women handing over their children. This was to present a homely mother-daughter image to respective clients. In January 1896, Evelina Marman, a well-liked 25-year-old barmaid, gave birth to an illegitimate daughter named Doris in a boarding house in Cheltenham, southwest England. Evelina quickly saw offers of adoption and placed an advertisement in the miscellaneous section of the Bristol Times and Mirror newspapers. It read, Wanted respectable woman to take a young child. Evelina intended to go back to work and hoped to eventually reclaim Doris. As a cruel act of fate, next to Evelina's article was another advertisement which read, married couple with no family would adopt a healthy child, nice country home, terms £10. £10 in 1896 would be around £1,300 in 2020. Evelina responded to the advert, which was in the name of a Mrs. Harding. A few days later, Amelia responded to Evelina. Posing as Mrs. Harding, Amelia wrote, I should be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. We are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but the company and home comfort. I and my husband are dearly fond of children, I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. Evelina wanted to pay a more affordable weekly fee for the care of Doris, but
but Amelia insisted on being given the one-off payment in advance. Due to her circumstances, Evelina had no choice but to reluctantly pay the £10 fee in full. A week later, Amelia, posing as Mrs Harding, arrived in Cheltenham. Evelina was surprised by Amelia's advanced age and stocky appearance, but Amelia's affection towards Doris led to Evelina handing over her daughter a cardboard box of clothes and the £10 fee. A few days later, Evelina received a letter from Mrs Harding saying all was well. Evelina wrote back, but received no reply. Amelia had told Evelina that she was travelling to Reading. This was a lie. She instead went to 76 Mayo Road in Wilsdon, London, where her 23-year-old daughter Polly was staying. It was here where Amelia found some white edging tape used in dressmaking and wound it twice around baby Doris's neck before tying a knot and consequently suffocating her. Amelia later said, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over with them. Both Amelia and her daughter allegedly helped to wrap Doris's body in a napkin. They kept some of the clothes Evelina had packed and sold the rest at a pawnbroker's. Amelia even gave her landlady a pair of child's boots as a present for her little girl. On April 1st, 1896, the following day, another child named Harry Simmons was taken to 76 Mayo Road. With no spare white edging tape available, Amelia reused the tape around the neck of Doris's corpse to strangle the 13-month-old boy to death. On April 2nd, 1896, the bodies of Doris and Harry were stacked into a carpet bag along with bricks for added weight. Amelia forced the carpet bag through railings into the River Thames at a secluded spot near Caversham Lock in Reading. Prior to this, on March 30th, 1896, and unbeknownst to Amelia, a package was received from the River Thames at Reading by a bargeman. This was another package dumped by Amelia, however she hadn't sufficiently weighted it, which resulted in it being easily spotted. This package contained the body of a baby girl named Helena Fry. As well as finding a label from Temple Mead Station in Bristol, Detective Constable Anderson used a microscopic analysis of the wrapping paper and deciphered a faintly legible name, Mrs Thomas, and an address. This evidence was enough to lead police to Amelia, however they still had no strong evidence to connect her directly with a serious crime. Additional evidence from witnesses led to Amelia's home being placed under surveillance. Police used a young woman as a decoy, hoping she would be able to secure a meeting with Amelia to discuss her baby farming services. Amelia was expecting her new client, the decoy, to call, but instead she found detectives waiting on her doorstep. On April 3rd, 1896, the police raided her home. They were struck by the stench of human decomposition, although no human remains were found on the premises. There was plenty of other evidence, however, including white edging tape, telegrams regarding adoption arrangements, pawn tickets for children's clothing, receipts for advertisements, and letters from mothers inquiring about the well-being of their children. The police calculated that in the previous few months alone, at least 20 children had been placed in the care of a Mrs Thomas, another of Amelia's aliases. 
it also appeared that Amelia was due to move home yet again. This rate of murder has led to some estimates that Amelia Dyer may have killed over 400 babies and children, making her one of the most prolific murderers ever. Amelia was arrested on April 4th, 1896 and charged with the murder of Helena Fry. Her son-in-law, Arthur Palmer, was charged as an accessory. During April 1896, the River Thames was searched and six more bodies were discovered, including Doris Marmon and Harry Simmons, Amelia's last victims. Each baby had been strangled with white edging tape and she later told police, you'll know all mine by the tape around their necks. Eleven days after handing her daughter to Amelia, Evelina Marmon identified Doris's remains. At the inquest into the deaths in early May 1896, no evidence was found that Polly or Arthur Palmer had acted as Amelia's accomplices. Arthur Palmer was discharged as the result of a confession written by Amelia. The following is a verbatim account of what Amelia wrote in Reading Prison on April 16th, 1896. Please remember that this was written over a hundred years ago in Victorian era English, so if you don't understand it, that'll be why. Sir, will you kindly grant me the favour of presenting this to the magistrates on Saturday the 18th instant? I have made this statement out, for I may not have the opportunity, then I must relieve my mind. I do know and I feel my days are numbered on this earth, but I do feel it is an awful thing drawing innocent people into trouble. I do know I should have to answer before my maker in heaven for the awful crimes I have committed, but as God Almighty is my judge in heaven and on earth. Neither my daughter, Mary Ann Palmer, nor her husband, Alfred Ernest Palmer, I do most solemnly declare neither of them had anything at all to do with it. They never knew I contemplated doing such a wicked thing until it was too late. I am speaking the truth, and nothing but the truth, as I hope to be forgiven. I and I alone must stand before my Maker in heaven to answer it all witness my hand. Amelia Dyer On May 22nd, 1896, Amelia appeared at the Old Bailey, a nickname for the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, and pleaded guilty to one murder, that of Doris Marmon. Amelia's family and associates testified at her trial, saying they had been growing suspicious and uneasy about her activities. It emerged that Amelia had narrowly escaped discovery on several occasions. Evidence from a man who had seen and spoken to Amelia when she had disposed of the two bodies at Caversham Lock also proved significant. Her daughter had given graphic evidence that ensured Amelia's conviction. The only defence Amelia offered was insanity, as she had previously been committed twice to asylums in Bristol. However, the prosecution argued successfully that her exhibitions of mental instability had been applied to avoid suspicion. Both committals were said to have coincided with times when Amelia was concerned her crimes might have been exposed. It took the jury only four and a half minutes to find her guilty. She spent three weeks in her cell, filling in five exercise books with her last true and only confession. The night before her execution, she was asked if she had anything to confess. Whilst handing over the five exercise books, Amelia replied, Isn't this enough? On the morning of June 10th, 1896, 
When asked on the scaffold of Newgate Prison if she had anything to say, Amelia said, I have nothing to say. She was hanged at 9am by executioner James Billington. She was given a drop of 3 feet 6 inches due to her weighing 213 pounds, around 15 stone. At the age of 57, she was the oldest woman to be executed since 1843. Her ghost was said to haunt Newgate Prison before its closure in 1902. It was then demolished two years after that in 1904. It is uncertain how many more children Amelia Dyer murdered. However, inquiries from mothers, evidence of other witnesses and material found in Amelia's homes, including letters and many babies' clothes, pointed to many more. Adoption laws were subsequently made stricter, giving local authorities the power to police baby farms in the hope of stamping out abuse. Despite this and the scrutinising power of newspaper personal ads, the trafficking and abuse of infants did not stop. Two years after Amelia's execution, railway workers inspecting carriages at Newton Abbott in Devon, southwest England, found a parcel. Inside was a three-week-old who, luckily, was still alive. The baby had been given to one Mrs. Stewart for £12. Mrs. Stewart had picked up the baby at Plymouth from her mother, Jane Hill, and dumped her on the next train. It has been claimed that Mrs. Stewart was in fact Polly, the daughter of Amelia Dyer. That was the story of British murderer Amelia Dyer. For more on British murders, please consider becoming a Patreon contributor. If you visit the link in the show notes and sign up for the middle or top tier, the middle tier being £3, the top tier being £10, you'll get a personalised thank you video that I will send to you from me, from the heart. And you'll also gain access to raw and unedited audio, all the scripts I use to record the show, You'll get early access to episodes a day earlier than everyone else. Behind the scenes footage for the top tier. There's loads of stuff I'm giving away on there. If you just want to support the show, then the lowest tier is a pound a month and every penny goes a long way. To follow the show on social media, just click on the links in the show notes. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. I've recently joined TikTok. I do some 15 second roundups on there of each episode, which is quite a challenge and I think it's pretty funny. You can send any case suggestions to me via social media or via email, which is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Please remember that I'm only interested in solved cases and where the suspect is British. Finally, just before I go and sign off, I just want to take the time here to promote a friend of mine, Bobby Holmes, who has a true crime podcast called Killer Stories. Bobby and I started our podcast journey at a very similar time earlier on in 2020 and I followed her show from the start. It's absolutely fantastic. So I'll leave you in the capable hands of Bobby to sign off the show. For now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. to go ahead and assume that you're a true crime fan. If you are like me, you can't get enough stories of murder, cold cases, and serial killers. I'm Bobby Holmes, and I'm here to scratch your true crime itch with over 25 episodes of Killer Stories. I think it's important to learn the history of both the victim and the attacker to try to figure out the why behind the killing. What motivated them? 
Was it a cheating husband who wants his wife out of the picture to start a new life? A serial killer who can't control his urges? Or maybe an unsolved case with multiple theories and suspects to discuss? From America's first serial killer in the 1800s to modern day cases and everything in between, join me every week for a new episode of True Crime Storytelling. Subscribe to Killer Stories, available on all podcast platforms.